Hi, this is Dr. Mehul Mankad, and you're listening to Episode Zero of the Forensic Psychiatry Podcast, American Jurisprudence. The preeminent forensic psychiatrist, Bill Reed, says that the cool thing about living in a free society is that you don't have to ask for approval to do things. Now, if that thing you want to do has a law that forbids that specific activity, then obviously you shouldn't do it. But if it's something that's not codified in the legal system, then by all means, have at it. Dye your hair purple, eat dessert first, learn to play the bongos. This is a permissive society not one where you generally have to ask permission. There are some hard and fast rules for living in this country, and they come from a few different sources. If it's been a few years since your high school civics or AP government class, then listen up. Think about the United States legal system as a giant pyramid, and that giant pyramid contains about 50 tiny pyramids. Hey, um... Here's an aside. Did you ever wonder what the capstone on top of a pyramid is called? It's called the pyramidion. I I had to look that up. So in any case, the pyramidion for the big pyramid, the overall pyramid that has the, the 50 little ones inside it, the pyramidion for the big pyramid is the U.S. Constitution. There is nothing above that document. It establishes the basic laws and rights for the entire country. What most people that live in the United States don't realize is that the majority of laws in the United States are not actually from the United States government. Most laws are state laws, and states actually have their own constitutions. So the state constitutions would be the pyramidia. That's, by the way, that's plural for pyramidion. So the state constitutions would be the pyramidia for their little pyramids. Now, both the United States Constitution and the state constitutions have laws that subordinate to those documents. We'll call those statutory laws. So those laws would be the bricks of the pyramids, I guess. So when you add up all 50 pyramids, there are actually more bricks, more local statutory laws than there are federal laws. But it it doesn't end there. One would think that the role of judges would be to apply those laws and then just go about their day, but it's not that easy. These laws are or were written at specific points in time, and time has a funny way of introducing new issues or problems that the framers of the constitutions or the legislators of the laws just didn't consider. So the laws have to be interpreted. In general, state laws are applied and interpreted by state judges. Federal laws are applied and interpreted by federal judges. So what happens when you don't agree with a judge? Now, come on, everybody has seen some sort of movie or or legal TV show. You appeal. How does that work? Who gets to appeal? What can you appeal? We're going to get back to that stuff in a moment. But first, let's finish talking about why we have these two tiers of laws, state and federal. Think back to the American Revolution and the subsequent disarray that our country endured 
until the Constitution came in in 1789. Many of the Founding Fathers were concerned about giving the federal government too much power. This federal system was enacted so the U.S. government would never become tyrannical like King George. So Thomas Paine, in common sense, dubbed King George the Royal Brute. A weird trivia piece, I suppose. There, there was also an economic divide between urban northern states and agrarian southern states in the original 13 colonies. Therefore, the framers of the Constitution favored a decentralized approach in which states would be free to write all kinds of laws that made sense to their locales. We can call those jurisdictions. They thought that an overarching set of laws and rights, the U.S. Constitution, would serve as an umbrella document that no state or federal laws should cross. That way, there would be at least a modicum of basic rights for all Americans without taking away too much power from the states. Now, I know what you're thinking. We could spend every waking hour of our natural lives arguing whether that legal model is appropriate, whether that legal model is still relevant, or whether that legal model has been partially or completely forsaken. As you remember from history class in high school, the Founding Fathers really, really needed the Constitution to pass, so they left some basic civil and criminal rights out of the document and promised to address them after ratification. So the first ten amendments to the U.S. Constitution are called the Bill of Rights, and we're going to look quickly at some of the amendments as they're particularly relevant to psychiatry. The Second Amendment famously allows Americans the right to bear arms, that means the right to own guns. The Fourth Amendment guards against unreasonable search and seizure, and that probable cause must exist before the government takes your stuff. The Fifth Amendment does not allow double jeopardy, meaning that you cannot be tried for the same crime twice. You also don't have to testify against yourself in a criminal case. Due process for federal cases lives in the Fifth Amendment, and we're going to talk more about due process in other lectures. But in a nutshell, due process means that the legal system can't pick and choose who gets laws applied to them and who doesn't. The law applies to everyone all the time. The Sixth Amendment provides specific protection in criminal court, such as the right to a speedy trial, the right to a jury trial, and the right to a free lawyer. The Eighth Amendment forbids cruel and unusual punishment. You can decide if the death penalty is cruel, as it is not currently outlawed by the federal legal system. The next one that I want to talk about is not from the Bill of Rights. It's not one of the first ten amendments, but it's super-duper important. It's the 14th Amendment, and it applies due process to the states. Remember when I said that most laws are state laws? Well, when slaves were freed after the Civil War, the United States wanted to make it clear that all laws, even state laws, had to apply to everyone evenly. So remember that I said we'd come back to the court system and appeals? It turns out 
that even though young Americans wanted to separate from the British, they still borrowed a ton of culture from them in the founding of this country. One of the cultural components that was essentially copied was the legal system. We use this impossible legal system in the U.S. called English common law. Now, you and I can agree that legislators, you know, whether they're federal or state, they pass statutory law, but when those laws go to court, that's when things get screwy. If a law is unclear, it must be interpreted by the court. The court writes an opinion explaining how they interpreted the law. That opinion stands as precedent as long as it does not transgress the boundaries of the Constitution. All other courts in that jurisdiction follow that opinion because of its precedential value. By the way, I'm saying precedent, not president. By the way, the reason that this makes common law complicated is that lawyers and judges have to research old judicial opinions before any new opinion is rendered. Of course, there's a cool Latin term for this. So the term, the Latin term for president is stare decisis. I, I think uh, most people in the U.S. pronounce it stare decisis. Um, I don't know how to pronounce it in the actual Latin. Uh, but basically it means let the decision stand. Now, if a higher court has a compelling reason to change precedent, they can do that in an appeal. What if courts start rendering opinions that run counter to the will of the people? Well, statutory laws can change legal precedent. So the theory goes like this. If you don't like a judicial opinion, then the populace can elect enough like-minded legislators and they can write statutory law that goes into place instead of the judicial opinion. How is an attorney in practice supposed to keep track of all these laws and court opinions so they can do their job effectively? It's hard. These issues are some of the main reasons that lay people need attorneys to navigate the legal system. Attorneys used to use a complex indexing system to find this material. Now there are electronic databases that help. You might think that they're similar to something like PubMed, but they're actually quite different. And the reason they're different is because hierarchy and history are more important in law than in science. The electronic databases used by attorneys are more specialized than something like Google or PubMed. Now, I haven't mentioned a trial by a jury of peers, have I? Some trials are, in fact, jury trials. First, we need to think about what actually happens at trial. Two sides are present. We call this an adversarial system. In the middle is the judge. In the case of a jury trial, the judge is like a traffic cop. They decide what information is shown to the jury. They also serve as a referee when one side thinks the other is bending or breaking the rules. So the judge is the expert on matters of law in the courtroom. If there's a jury, we call them the trier of fact. When the jury weighs evidence and makes a decision, they're deciding what really happened. Now, the accused party is the one who usually gets to choose if there will be a jury or not. When there is no jury, we call that a bench trial. 
In that case, the judge is the trier of fact as well as the trier of law. In an appeal of a verdict, the party asking for the appeal can only appeal matters of law, not matters of fact. Let me say that again. So when there is an appeal of a verdict, the party asking for the appeal, that's usually the losing party, can only appeal matters of law, not matters of fact. It might surprise you that appeals courts at higher levels actually don't hear any new evidence. They only decide if the judge in the lower court made an error with their handling of laws pertaining to specific cases. Let's get back to the federal courts. There are three levels of federal courts. Currently, there are 94 federal district courts. Every state has at least one. Those courts are the first to hear federal cases. We can call them trial courts. The next level up are the U.S. Court of Appeals. There are 13 of them, and each covers a numbered circuit. So there's like a fourth circuit or a ninth circuit. Sometimes they're called appellate courts or circuit courts. The final level of appeal is the U.S. Supreme Court. There are currently nine justices on the Supreme Court, and they vote on cases that come before them. The funny thing about Supreme Court justices is that we all hope and dream that they're impartial arbiters of the law. The reality is that they have very clear interpretations of the U.S. Constitution. Legal scholars can predict with nearly 100% accuracy how each Supreme Court justice is going to vote based on their previously published opinions and how they view the U.S. Constitution. All right, we le we're leaving the federal courts, we're going back to the states. Every state has a similar system of multiple court tiers, but they may give it slightly different names, so they may not be called a court of appeals or a Supreme Court or, or what have you. If one side in a legal case does not feel like they've received satisfaction from the state appellate system, that is the state system of appeals, then they can actually try to turn the case over to the federal appeals system and sometimes that actually works. By the way, none of the stuff that I talked about with English common law and precedent applies in a bunch of the world, particularly in non-English speaking countries. The system used by France is called the Napoleonic Code. In that system, judges interpret current law, but their decisions don't affect the opinions of future judges. The US state of Louisiana which was not one of the original 13 colonies, has actually maintained its French legal system and uses a system that's very similar to the Napoleonic Code. That is a nice piece of legal trivia if you're stuck at a, uh, like a dinner party with a bunch of attorneys. Now, I know what you're thinking. Why the heck is he going into all this detail about the law? When are we going to get to the, the health care piece? So... The good news, at least, is that we're uh, more than halfway done. Uh, and so I really appreciate you sticking with me. So we've got a few more legal concepts to go. And if you're thinking, well, like, wow, like, I, I forgot how much I enjoy this stuff. That's great. Uh, then I think you're going to enjoy this course. If you're thinking, uh, I can't wait for this to be over, uh, and I'm glad I didn't go to law school, then please understand that uh, all of the remaining sessions are much more clinical. 
All right, so the last few concepts. We need to talk about two critical legal concepts before we talk about any specific areas of law. Those are burden of proof and standard of proof. Burden of proof is the obligation resting on a party at trial to produce the evidence that will shift the conclusion in a certain direction. Usually, the burden is on the prosecution or the complaining party to prove with facts that their position is valid. If the party with the burden of proof cannot prove that their point is valid, then the other party wins by default. You can see that the party with the burden has the task of creating a story. The other party could create a story, we can call that the alternate hypothesis, or their strategy just may be to poke holes in the story of the side with the burden. By the way, have you ever wondered how lawsuits get their names? Usually the complaining party is listed first and the defending party is listed last. So let's say there's a case called Smith v. Jones or Smith v. Jones. Smith is the plaintiff and Jones is the defendant. And the burden of proof probably lies with Smith. Standard of proof is the degree to which the facts of the case are likely to be true in order to win a case. Less likely than not, or less than 50%, is not a standard of proof in any courtroom. At least as likely as not is defined as exactly 50% likely. More likely than not, or preponderance of the evidence, is 51% likely, or one-half plus one. Clear and convincing evidence is at least 75% likely, and beyond a reasonable doubt is greater than 90% likely. Some would argue it's even higher than that, like 95% likely. Now, the lowest standard of proof to prove anything is the at least as likely as not standard, and that's used by the VA in service-connected disability cases. The government is essentially giving these veterans a generous benefit of the doubt because the fact finder, the person deciding if the veteran is uh, disabled, was not there. They were not physically there in combat. The next higher standard, preponderance of the evidence, is used in most civil trials. So in medical malpractice, for example, which is a civil issue, the jury has to only believe that the harm probably happened, so 51% likely, in order to award money to the plaintiff. The next higher standard, clear and convincing, is used when something more than money is at stake. You will see clear and convincing used in child custody cases or civil commitment hearings. The highest standard, beyond a reasonable doubt, is used in criminal cases. You remember that old saying, Better to let ten guilty men go free than to convict one innocent man. So let's end by talking about the two main branches of law, criminal and civil. You could think about criminal law as public law and civil law as private law. In criminal law, the person whom we'll call a defendant is being processed because they committed some sort of social infraction that's codified as criminal. It could be violent, such as assault on another, or it could be nonviolent, such as embezzlement of money. 
the defendant is granted the protection of individual rights, the least of which are set by the U.S. Constitution. Procedurally, here's what usually happens. First, there's an arrest by police. That is the first deprivation of liberty. The defendant is then detained, but they still have the rights of a citizen. In fact, they're reminded of their Fifth Amendment constitutional protections and any other state protections. If the arrest happened in a city, the defendant will likely go to a precinct lockup overnight. The police precinct will have some holding cells to contain people awaiting transportation to jail later that night or the next day. Jails usually run by counties are for pre-trial detainees. The defendant has not been found guilty yet and should not be called an inmate. The next morning after the arrest, the defendant attends their arraignment. This is a formal reading of the charges and entry of a plea. They will either be charged with a petty crime, we can call those misdemeanors, or a serious crime, which you know as felonies. Bail is assigned. The defendant leaves if they've made bail. Now, they're not totally free. They are just released awaiting trial. If they can't afford bail, they may get a bondsman. The bondsman asks the defendant to pay them a non-refundable amount, and the bondsman will put up the rest. If the defendant paid their own bail and doesn't show up, they forfeit the amount of money they put in, and they still have to eventually come back to court anyway. If the bondsman paid a portion of the bail, then the bondsman loses their money, and they don't like losing money. If the defendant can't make bail or secure a bondsman, then they stay in jail until the trial is over. All that time that they are in jail counts towards a sentence in case they are found guilty. Now, what's a plea bargain? The prosecutor comes to the defense attorney and offers a deal, a lesser charge or a shorter sentence, for example, time served. And then what does the defendant do? They change their plea to a guilty plea. If found guilty of a misdemeanor, the defendant pays a fine or serves the rest of their few weeks or months in jail. But if they're found guilty of a felony, the defendant goes to prison. Prisons are typically large and they're typically rural and they typically have long sentences, for example, at least a year, but often several years. Now, we don't have time to go into some of the new non-adversarial systems that, that exist. You may have learn from reading the psychiatry literature that there are things like drug courts or mental health courts, and, and these seek uh, non-punitive solutions to manage non-violent offenders. So all that stuff is criminal law. Well, what about the rest? To be expeditious, and this is, this is going to make uh, any attorneys who are listening cringe, we're going to lump all other branches of law into a huge group called civil law. The legal system, when it was originally designed, was really set up to handle criminal law. But over the decades, the proportion of law that involves issues between two parties where no one is alleging criminal activity has grown substantially. These branches include contract law, which involves disputes between businesses, family law, which governs divorce and child custody, and tort law, which covers damages for person and property. Tort is an anglicized version of the French word for wrong. Tort law is now huge. Medical malpractice, for example, is a subset of tort law, by the way. 
and we'll devote an entire session to medical malpractice. If you want to sound cool, you can call it medmal. There are some esoteric types of law, such as entertainment law, agricultural issues, maritime law. We're not going anywhere near any of those things. By the way, there's a third body of codes that have to be followed. These are called administrative rules and regulations. They're basically rules that govern behavior that are written by people in the executive branch of government, not by the legislators and not by judicial opinion. For individual citizens like you or me, they function just like laws. An example of administrative code would be all the stuff you have to do to comply with your state medical board. The legislators in your state actually have a law empowering a medical board to be created, but they don't really get into details so much as to how it's run. The medical board makes a bunch of rules and you have to follow them as if they were laws. Otherwise, what, what happens? You lose your license. There are a ton of these administrative codes and they are at the very bottom of the pyramid we talked about at the beginning. Now you know stuff. Mm-hmm.